Good afternoon, you're tuning into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. As usual, I'll be your host for the next hour, Kingsley Kipuri. I'm joined in studio by Greg, who's now rejoicing that the box made a comeback. Greg, welcome <laughs> yeah. to the show. As, as an Australian, it makes me really, really excited. <laughs> it warms your heart. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not to mention Trevor Noah's debut last night, which I heard went really, really well. I wasn't there, but you know, I also heard it went well. So lots of things you're just like excited about from a distance. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm particularly excited about today's show. There we go. We've got a really, really packed one lined up talking about all things local and international. Um, firstly, we want to start talking a bit about um, race relations in America. And I think one, one moment that really ignited this conversation, not only there, but, but even all the way over here was, was the, the shooting and killing of Mike Brown um, in August 2014. Um, this was an unarmed 18-year-old who was shot and killed by a police police officer in Ferguson, and 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 that's really a moment that I think all over the world that people people will remember by asking, you know, how does this happen? What kind of what kind of system and what kind of situation causes something so tragic to happen? Um, so we'll be talking to somebody who was actually involved in in the case after that and 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 lives close to Ferguson and can really give us a a first-hand account of of what's going on, Professor Justin. Hansford, welcome to the show. Thanks, glad to be here. Good, good. Um, tell me, um, how's your time in South Africa going so far? So far, so good. Yeah. I can't complain. The weather's great. Uh, South Africans have been really welcoming. Um, had a chance to go on the color run, so I was able to go out there and have a good time. So no complaints here so far. <laughs> okay, <perfect>. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think when uh, the first thing that I wanted to just talk to you about when I when I when I found out that we were able to meet with you and talk to you was really to get an idea of what what it's actually like on the ground. I think we see things on Twitter and we see it on CNN, and it's often when there's a protest or, or especially a violent protest, or mm-hmm. unfortunately maybe somebody's just been killed, and it's always at these very heated times. So I'd love to get an idea from you of living close to Ferguson, like what it's actually like on a, you know day, everyday basis. Yeah, well, well, it's real life. Um, people are living their daily lives. Um, but one thing about Ferguson <clears throat> that I think is different from most places in the country mm. is we had the situation last August, which was a transformative situation for people throughout the community. So um, I was out there as, with many other people when they shot tear gas, when they the police would come and point guns at us and threaten to kill us <clears throat> just for protesting. Right. Mm. And so as a result of that activity, a lot of people in Ferguson, young people who are activists are fearless. There's nothing really, there's nearly nothing else they can do to us that can make us intimidated. So as a result, um, when they are upset about race relations and when they see injustice happening, mm. it's nothing to go and shut, shut it down, you know, to go to, to a mall or go to a protest mm. is a way of life in Ferguson in a way that it isn't in other places in the country, um, which also may have that same sort of Black Lives Matter um, revolutionary feeling in their hearts, but haven't had the same uh, s- sort of situation. We're almost bathed in this uh, or baptized, if you will, in this environment where you're, you've seen the worst mm. that they can do to you and you've survived it. And so now it's all downhill. So that's pretty much what Ferguson is like. It's a, it's a unique place with unique people. I mean, I'm curious around, you know, what, what informs your actions now? Cause you've mentioned you've been on the front lines. You're in yeah. there when the, when the, when the tear gas is flying and people can't breathe and can't see properly. So I'm curious around sort of what preceded this, what preceded the, 
the really great legal career and really sort of decorated legal career and activism? What sort of informed what informed this? Was you growing up? Was was civil rights and civil justice and, and racial justice? Was that something that was really prevalent in your home on your upbringing? Uh, when I was a kid, yeah. I wanted to be Michael Jordan, and I thought I was going to go to the NBA. So. I saw your sneakers, man. I saw your sneakers. Yeah, You're I, not I, far I, I still wear Nikes, you know. Um, of course, that n- didn't work out. I wasn't able to get over six feet um, in terms of my height, so that was the end of that. But I did, when I was about 14 or 15, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, and that really changed my entire outlook um, because it was a book that showed that I could use my my mind as opposed to just my body and as opposed to just my athletic ability and really create change and be a positive impact on the community. I, actually, I was I was a kid who was in trouble. Um, I was actually home suspended, suspended from school um, for about a week. I was in big trouble and um, I picked up the book and I read the book straight. I didn't I didn't stop to do anything else i just ate and slept and read the book for about three or four days and i really uh transformed into someone who was passionate about knowledge and using that knowledge in sort of a fight for civil rights when i was about 15 or 16 and uh people like marcus garvey um nelson mandela went on to become my heroes Mm. and so since i was a teenager i've been interested in the struggle and then uh, fast forward 10 or 15 years and I find myself in Ferguson, um, right when things pop off. So it sort of just was something that was supposed to happen, I guess, just like that. Mm. Um, could you tell us just about how you found out about the, about the Mike Brown shooting? If I'm not wrong, you were at a conference, I think, and, and how you found yeah. out and how you got involved. I was actually in Washington DC at the U.S. Africa conference. Okay. So Africa was already present there. And, um, I looked at my Facebook timeline. And I saw his dead body there and I saw everybody was talking about it back home and I was already scheduled to drive home the next day. Mm. And I ended up driving with a friend of mine from Chicago who was also an activist and the whole entire drive, we're getting calls from activists. We're getting calls from people telling us what the situation was like. Um, he was friends with Emmett Till's mother. So I actually, uh, was there getting calls from her. And uh, so the whole entire trip from D.C. Mm. to St. Louis, about 15-hour trip, uh, we're getting filled in on the situation. <clears throat> and then when I get there, um, I see some friends of mine who are out protesting, so I join them. And it was it was a unique situation. So you have thousands of people on the street. Um, you know, you drive down the street, you'll see little kids, five, six years old, uh, coming up to your car saying hands up don't shoot and and um you know it was something that really just engulfed the entire community i tell people that uh the thing about mike brown's last moments um uh, which are they're so powerful so the last act he ever he ever did was put his hands up in the air and say you know according to some observers to say hands up don't shoot and I tell people, if you had gotten a consultant and done a marketing campaign, you couldn't come up with a better slogan or a better way to communicate than his final moments. Because little kids could just put up their hands and say, hands up, don't shoot. And they could identify with the movement. Um, it was a it's a gesture. And many people think the gesture is a, a gesture of giving up or a defensive gesture. 
But when you're out there on the streets protesting mm. and police have their guns pointed at you, when you say when you say hands up, don't shoot and you put your hands up, uh, they can't say you're reaching for a weapon. Uh, it's very clear that they're on the offensive and mm. you're on the defensive. So with that with that gesture, you can walk right up to the police and protest right there. And, you know, they are put on the defensive because they can't say that you're a threat to them anymore. So it's, it's their strategic values to that gesture. Um, it's a, it's a very spiritual thing. The last, his, his last moments on earth, mm. um, created this, this, uh, this gesture and this movement. So it's just a, just such a powerful scene. I couldn't tell you, um, in just a few minutes how powerful that scene was. Um, and so that's what I saw when I arrived, which was August, August 10th. Um, and so as soon as I arrived, mm. I went straight out there to West Florissant is the name of the street where most of the protests were taking place. Mm. And the rest is history. I mean, I'm hearing very much your sort of activist mind, your, yeah. <laughs> your protest thinking. Yeah. And I'm curious about the legal side of what's, of what you are sort of identified as what needed to happen next and how you actually got in, involved in the legalities of it all. Well, yeah, I'm a law professor yeah. and I'm a lawyer. So of course to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? <laughs> so, you know, I immediately started to think about some of the legal ramifications. Mm. I happened to be teaching a class on race and the law. At the same time, this happened, so it's pretty easy to teach class that semester. We just came and talked about what happened the previous week, and um, I'm currently working on a textbook on race and the law, so I've, I've got a lot of background in the area of race relations and criminal justice mm. and all of these these issues that played right into the case, so it sort of a, it was a perfect fit. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking back to the outrage when it was found yeah. that, that Darren Wilson was was acting in self-defense, I think was the end sort of closure of that. And the, and the collective outrage of people feeling that maybe there is no justice for, for, for black people in America. Yeah, well, uh, so that, that decision, as you, you, you may or may not know, was, was made by the, County prosecutor. I hate to even use his name. His name is sort of, sort of like a, a like bad, bad word. Bad yeah, it tastes bad in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. um, his name is Robert McCullough, but you know, he, you know, he's, you know, he's someone who, um, there's a lot of antagonism against in the black community, not just really before this happened. Okay. Um, and so the process itself was a one sided process. Okay. And so, for example, Darren Wilson got to present testimony for four hours and tell his side of the story. Of course, Mike Brown never got to tell his side. But not only did he not get a chance to tell his side, he didn't get a chance to have his own lawyers question Darren Wilson. And the prosecutor, what he did was, you know, he, he gave Darren Wilson softball questions. And all the witnesses who supported Mike Brown's story, uh, they ag- aggressively questioned them and undermined their stories. So, you know, so I can go into the details of the legal process, but many of us feel like that's another part of the system that's mm-hmm. broken. Mm-hmm. So systematically, you see prosecutors who are good friends with cops. Don't forget, prosecutors prosecute criminals every day. And so they need to work with cops every day, right? So every day, they're building these relationships with police. And then when police commit crimes, they're then asked to go and prosecute those same buddies of theirs that they've been working with all this time. And it's so the system is rigged and we all know it. 
And uh, unfortunately, in this case, we predicted the outcome. We yeah. knew what the outcome was going to yeah. be. That's why we kept protesting all that time. Absolutely. And yeah. and something we, you and I spoke about just briefly before the show is there was a there was a push to take this this matter and these issues to the UN and that, that's yeah. not something that we've heard too much about. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, well, you know, we went to the UN yeah. and um I guess if I hadn't been there myself, I wouldn't believe it because <laughs> you, you don't hear about <laughs> it too Ferguson much in the media. Yeah, you don't hear about it in the media too much, but uh Mike Brown's mother and father both went with us. <laughs> um as well as some of the activists who were leaders in on the ground in Ferguson. You know, it was a powerful scene, you know. Um I can recall in particular one moment when Mike Brown's mother went and presented her own testimony and she described what it was like to stand there in the hot sun for four hours. Her son's body's laying on the street. They won't bring an an ambulance to come and try to provide any medical attention. Um, and they won't let her even go to the body. So she stood there literally four hours in the hot sun in August. Um, with uh, her son's dead body right there, nobody helping. And um, when she finished telling her story uh, to the, the UN body, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. So people who were representatives from all over the world um, were able to empathize with her situation. And actually the conclusion of the UN was that this entire situation is a violation of the human rights and the human dignity of African Americans. And so they agreed with her. They told her that this was wrong. Um, and it's a shame she had to go all the way to Geneva, Switzerland for somebody, for somebody to, to listen to her, right? And to get her dignity reclaimed because that's what it was about, reclaiming her dignity and the, the family's sense of justice. Um, but I think that this happened during that trip and it was an important trip. And ever since then, you've seen the UN mm. come out more and more to discuss the issue of police violence in the United States and how unjust it is. And even uh, recently, the U.S. had to admit that they need to make changes on the question of police brutality and uh, racial profiling. So, you know, I think it's made some sort of positive impact. We also know that when the so this so this trip happened before the decision not to prosecute was made. Mm. And uh, we know that when they were deciding how they were going to respond once the decision was made not to prosecute, uh, the governor and others said that we don't want to have more negative attention or international attention like we had in the past. So they decided to, to, to not shoot first and ask questions later and nobody was killed during the, the protests, you know, and so we hope that, that that had some sort of positive impact when we went to the United Nations. Um, I mean, just yes, when sir. you're describing, I mean, you know, a body laying in the hot sun for four hours and, and just sort of, you know, the lack of dignity, I think, I mean, all I can think is what, what do you think needs to happen? People talking about body cameras, people talking about, is it police reform? Is it judicial reform? Is it, is there any point in aiming for incremental reform or do the systems actually just need to be re, rethought and rebuilt? Right. Well, so that, that's a, that's the yeah. key question, right? So is the system broken or as I would suggest, is the system working exactly as it was designed to in the first place? And if it's the, if it's the second one, then no amount of body cameras, no amount of, um, uh, reforms are going to make a difference. I mean, so for example, if you were to ask during the height of apartheid, you know, what we need to do, we don't need to change government. <laughs> Let's just get these, uh, 
these nas- nationalist police forces some body cams and they'll treat you guys nicer okay because there's evidence of right there's evidence right so they'll be nicer to you guys um you, you know that's a that's a big problem and it's not going to work what they'll do of course is use the body cams against you so what we've already seen is that uh they take some of the footage from the body cams and use it as evidence when they're trying to to tag someone with a crime so even a minor crime like jaywalking or something like that um in the past they may just let you slide. Now they have you on camera and they're going to prosecute you to the full extent of the law. And so, so some of the issues that might get closer to a solution mm. are, uh, for example, the reform of this thing called stop and frisk where they single out, uh, people that they think are likely to be criminals and they stop them and frisk them even if they haven't broken the law. Mm. Uh, those sorts of things have to stop. So those are some of the things that get closer to the answer. But at the end of the day, like I said, the concern is the system isn't broken. The system is working exactly how it's supposed to work. And so we have to rethink the whole entire basis of how race in America functions in the 21st century. And it's a big job. That you know we're not really ready for it yet, but we're working towards it. You know, yeah. I mean, are are you seeing or do you do you feel there's the political will though to ask those tough questions that are maybe national politics? Do you think it's the will is there to to really interrogate some of these systems and to, and to look into what's going on? Not at all, right? But the the protesters are there and they're really pushing for mm. reform. And so we've seen that all the all the presidential candidates from Hillary Clinton. Mm to uh bernie sanders at least all the presidents presidential candidates on the democratic side have had to come to us the protesters and ask questions and that's something that's new that hasn't happened since god knows when so we're we're making some some sort of progress in that we're demanding that people come to the table and talk to us um i mean that's great you're making it you're making it such that there's just there's no way to engage in national politics without without talking to you right and And also shut it down you know so sometimes you have to shut things down to get people to listen and that's the value of protests right so i I have a a friend named uh deray who's a protester in ferguson he always says that um oftentimes you don't need to have a lot of complicated theories or you know a lot of speeches Mm -hmm. Just acknowledging reality is enough to make you radical, and that's enough to radicalize you once you acknowledge what's really happening. And so we're seeing that happen all across the country, and so people are being radicalized just by the simple fact of coming face-to-face with what is happening in, with race in America. Um, yeah, you were saying just quickly before the show, the truth is radical enough, and yep. you don't need to, to look too hard for it. If you're just tuning in, we're talking to Professor Justin Hansford, who's who's in the country actually doing some research about Nelson Mandela. If I'm not wrong, could you could yeah. you tell tell us about that? Yeah, well, um, one of my favorite authors, Toni Morrison, yeah. has this quote uh, where she says that if there's a book out there that you want to read and it doesn't exist, then you have to be the one to go and write it. And so, for me, uh, as a young lawyer and an activist, I always wanted to know. Uh, what it was like to be Nelson Mandela when he was my age, right? Because when he was my age, when he was in his early 30s, I don't want to date myself too much, but when he was in his <laughs> early 30s, yeah. he was a lawyer and he was an activist at the same time, right? He was working for the ANC. He was practicing law with mm. Mandela and Tambo, the law firm. And um, so I wanted to see what that experience was like and to see if there's anything we could learn from that experience that we could bring back to a place like Ferguson and help to make the social justice struggle that much more powerful. Uh, so it was really just me trying to go out and fulfill that dream and see if 
there's something that can be learned from it, you know. I mean, have you, are you seeing any parallels just as you, I suppose, put together your research report and some of the preliminary thinking? Do you think there are any parallels between some of the stuff that's played out here and what you're seeing now on the ground? Yeah, it's the same thing. It's yeah. a racial justice struggle versus a system that's designed to create white domination. So it's the exact same thing from a, from a, a large over, overarching standpoint. Now, of course, the particulars of apartheid and what's happening now are mm. different um, in the sense that it was enshrined in law at that time on the grounds of race. And what we have, uh, it plays out not so much enshrined as what they call de jure segregation, which is using the law for segregation. Yeah. It's de facto. It's what's really, what's really happening on the ground every day. So, um, but then in a broad sense, yeah. We're doing the same thing. We're fighting a racial justice struggle. Um, we're, we're searching for everything that we can use to make change, leave no stone unturned. We're trying to go international. For example, I'm here, <laughs> you know, just like um, the ANC and other mm-hmm. movements went international and got their support abroad. Uh, we, you know, we're trying to make sure that we were able to change the narrative around the inequality in the same way that the ANC was able to do that. So there are a lot of parallels mm-hmm. And I could go on and on about the parallels. The system, though, that you're fighting against seems very resistant to change. I remember we've seen almost the conservatives in America and the American media mm. take almost any chance they can to attack the Black Lives Matter movement and sort of bring it down even when there's not even any, not justification, but any sort of link to to what they're saying right. happened. Mm. Right. So it's definitely going to be a long struggle. Right. Well, yeah, so... I think that's the reality that we're going to have to face. So we live in a, a time where people want it now. You're used to mm. being able to just pull it up on your phone and, you know, the revolution won't be able to be won't, not just televised. It won't be on your app or on Twitter. It's going to be a long-term struggle. And I think we're having to recognize that there's going to be opposition. So the conservatives in the media and in the, the presidential election are just one example of the opponents. The bigger, the biggest opponent, of course, are the police unions. Mm-hmm. You know, they're fighting and using the harshest language that you can imagine. So our local police union, um, has a, one of their chiefs. His name is Jeff Royda. Um, he came to a rally a couple of months ago with a wristband on saying, I am Darren Wilson. And so, you know, they still celebrate Darren Wilson on the one year anniversary of Mike Brown's killing, uh, one of the policing organizations in the St. Louis region, um, announced that it was going to be Darren Wilson Day. So they're, they're, the same day Mike Brown was killed, one year later, they've announced that that day is going to be Darren Wilson Day in this policing organization's, um, uh, whatever, whatever dream world they live in. So, so these are the sorts of opposition factions that we're seeing even today in 2015 on a local level, let alone the national level. So I don't think we can really think that a few body cams or, um, you know, a few small reforms are going to be enough to make that long-term change happen. You know, we're going to have to change attitudes and hearts and minds and policies and laws at the same time. I mean, I hear you. I found, I found a quote that you had somewhere that I just, I just loved. And you were saying on, on blackness, it's a gift and a curse. Mm. Biggest underdogs in the world, but at the same time have this tremendous opportunity to make to make a real change. Yeah, you know it. Yeah. So it sounds like despite the tragedies happening, that it's also somewhat an exciting time and a chance to, you know, be part of something really tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. 
and and you know when I came here, I heard about roads must fall and I you know transform. Uh, open open Stellenbosch, open Stellenbosch and yeah. transformation, transform Vits. Yeah. So all so I, there's really a global movement happening, and it's based with young people and the students, and it's exciting. And you know you've got musicians signing on. Um, you've got was it uh, Janelle Monae made a song. Uh, we know we play Kendrick Lamar's song all the time at our protests now. So, you know, you got all parts of the movement coming together. So it's going to be a, an exciting thing that's going to take place. Absolutely. And it's yeah. really credit to people like you, who you know, who are leading the way. Yeah, man. I'm just, I'm just glad I was there at the right, right place at the right time, you know. Okay. Professor, thank you so much for making time for us. Okay. And thank you for the great work you're doing, man. You you know, you inspire our movements here and, and vice versa. So it's a big, big thank you. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. Yeah, we look forward to reading your research. I can't wait to see what you come up with. All right, cool. <laughs> cool. Okay, perfect. Thank you. All right, take care. So Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. We're just going to go into a quick, quick break, and then we'll be talking about the corruption march that's happening tomorrow. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com.